So maybe like, again, right after 4th of July, before the end of July, when so many things were up in the air from the state board and, and Keisha and all those things, I really didn't know if by mid-August we were going to start school. You know, 2020 was filled with so many ups and downs. And a lot of times it felt like just a lot of downs. <laughs> and that uh, was all painted by the global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're still living in. And one of the biggest questions surrounding life during this time was how would schools work? How would education work? How would students and teachers uh, maintain this educational relationship at a time when so many people are asked to stay away from each other? And one of the biggest questions was how would students be at school? How would they get together in a classroom, um, at, especially after the spring when we all went home and we we're on Zoom? And so that's what we wanted to explore in this episode as we look back at 2020 is how did education work? In this episode where we highlight the, the role of educators and of education in uh, especially during this pandemic year and, and how they've uh, challenge, been challenged to stay open and keep kids in school uh, and, and the challenges that they faced. Uh, we wanted to evaluate and talk to both uh, K-12 administrators who, who managed to keep the doors open to our schools in Crawford County, but then also to speak with a longtime PSU professor uh, who's dedicated his life to teaching and that being his focus, and to hear his perspective on how different it was to be forced to do this uh, in these alternative ways. So uh, we're fortunate today to have uh, on Around the Block, first segment focused on K-12, we have Superintendent uh, Dr. Rich Prophet, who serves as superintendent at USD 250, along with uh, president of schools, Mr. Dennis Burke, who's president of schools for St. Mary's Colgan, our parochial school here in Pittsburgh. And so I uh, had a great couple of conversations with these folks to highlight the role that educational institutions and educators played in helping to get us through 2020. So to start things off, let's go around the block with Dr. Rich Prophet and Mr. Dennis Burke. Uh, welcome, friends, to uh, another episode of Around the Block, and uh, we're very pleased on this segment today as we, as we round out 2020 and, and think about uh, this last 12 months. Uh, we're pleased today to have uh, uh, Dr. Rich Prophet and uh, Mr. Dennis Burke, uh, two superintendents from here in Crawford County, uh, Dr. Prophet at USD 250, Mr. Burke at uh, SMC, St. Mary's Colgan, um, and uh, we really wanted to focus on this, on, on really the role that educators and education has played uh, in, in helping us through this year. And, and frankly, if we're going to hold up any group of folks as the highest, other than healthcare workers, I think just a close second is our educators, particularly here in Crawford County, who not only managed to get the schools open on time, have the predominance of our students in class, but kept them safe, kept them in class, and uh, that is something that we should be celebrating. So uh, we really wanted to, to talk to the two of you today and, and uh, congratulate you on, on actually, as of officially today, the last day of the semester, uh, and also to thank you for your work. And so uh, we're really pleased to have you today. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. So, um, and, and uh, 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 Rich, if you don't mind me calling you Rich here. Uh, That's fine. Uh, if we, uh, we'll start with you on this question. And, and as you think back on 2020, uh, as I've said, the, the strangest of years for, for any of us uh, on, this, uh, uh, on this discussion, uh, what did you learn from 2020? What did it mean to you? And, and, and as you look forward into how you're going to apply those lessons learned, uh, just share with us uh, some of that. Well, it, uh, safe to say that uh, the year 2020 has been a complete mess. And we've had to deal with a lot of things that we never imagined that we would have to deal with in education, uh, as a community, uh, as a state, nation, and the world. Uh, everybody knows that. And even though we have a lot of differing opinions about how to, how to deal with everything in and around the pandemic, the one thing that I think in Pittsburgh that has really shown through is that for the most part, 
what we have been able to accomplish truly was a team effort. Uh, even though you have some detractors and you have some of those outliers, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, most everybody has pulled through by cooperating, uh, trying to be on the same page. Um, you know, like all the area superintendents, we have uh, been so fortunate to have uh, Dr. Stebbins and Dr. Bean uh, as our county health officers, uh, asking for their guidance and for their level-headed approach but then having you know, six guys who, who lead school systems in our county that uh, also have a level-headed approach that work together and then work with their boards of education and uh, to, to come up with a plan that's really good for everybody. But then for our parents, our students and our patrons to do their part to keep things rolling because it's not just the fact that we were able to uh, continue in school, we were also able to continue in our activities for the most part. Doesn't mean that we didn't have some setbacks and some challenges and, and uh, we didn't have some cancellations. We still see some of those, but we were still able to uh, fulfill the, the role of just about every area that, that we have been in the past. And we could not have been able to do that without the cooperation of our community. And so we're, we're very thankful to be in a community that, that upholds education and the importance of education uh, for our students. And um, so uh, the, the communication that we have put out there for everybody to understand and then for them to do their part to help us move forward is, is really my major takeaway for the year. Great. Um, and, and Dennis, how about for you? Well, I just have to, you know, uh, ditto on just about everything Rich said. Like, like I, I agree with Rich in the fact that um, this wouldn't have been as successful with, with such a major challenge had we not already had great relationships with everybody. Uh, we worked well together. So that was organic to begin with. Uh, this was a big challenge, but we just upped our level of cooperation a little bit and communication. And I think those two things combined and just the fact that everybody essentially had the same goal, which was to make sure that the kids didn't suffer. And if anything, and, uh, and actually kind of benefit in any way we could from these unusual challenges. And I think everybody was on the same page, which made the world a difference. Well, and I think that uh, one reason why I think this is the most important story, one of the most important stories for us to tell about Crawford County is that when we think about the rest of the country and the millions of school children who did not have the ability, the access, the capacity to be able to attend in person. And, uh, you know, the initial sort of research that's coming out of that, of what the impact uh, it's, it's, I mean, I don't think that it's uh, unfair to say devastating in a lot of respects. Um, and, and that's not to overly criticize. I know people have to make, uh, you know, local decisions based on the facts on the ground and those sorts of things. But the truth is, is that those kids who were not in school, particularly those that were on the margins, may have already been struggling. You know, what we're seeing so far is that the, the, the uh, incidence of, of failing grade, the of Fs, increased exponentially, uh, the, number, the amount of social isolation, the amount of those kinds of things. And I think that what a lot of people uh, don't don't think about is, you know, we do have a lot of kids that are on the margins in Crawford County. Uh, and, and, and that might even be as far down uh, on the margins of that's even where they're going to be able to eat is at school. And so, um, you know, I think for the two of you and, and, and what you've done and along with our health uh, public health officers to be able to keep these schools open was so essential. Um, I mean, I, I guess maybe if you talk a little bit about and this might even go to the way with your with the teachers, uh, with the other administrators in, within your own schools, um, just how how you were able to make this happen. And, and because we've had almost no in school transmission. So how is that even possible? Uh, well, if you don't mind, if I start on that, um, it's possible because um, like I said before, everybody did their part and they, they followed protocols. Uh, that doesn't mean that we didn't have, um, you know, some, uh, some cases that crept into the building. The vast majority of those were uh, due to contact outside of the building, but it's really cooperation. But I, I wanna go back to something else that you, you said. Um, this pandemic hasn't just been something that can attack the physical body. 
uh, for a lot of people. Uh, the mental health aspect of it is, is critical. Uh, you know, we in education are able to see some statistics that maybe other people aren't. And when you see across the nation since March that teen suicides have gone up over 400%, that, is, that speaks volumes. Um, that we know that the isolation, that the kids not being in school, uh, you talked about the kids being on the margins. We know that even in Pittsburgh, we don't know if a kid's going to get uh, a meal that day. We don't know what the home environment is going to be like. And, and unfortunately, uh, even in our community, we've seen uh, increase in, in um, some violence and uh, also in some abuse. And uh, we just know that for some of our kids, the environment that we have them in may be the best, best environment that, that they're gonna have for that day. They're gonna eat. They're gonna have people that care for them, that they're going to love them, they're gonna teach them, and, um, and they're gonna go away uh, better than when they came in the door. And so just the sheer fact that we're able to take care of that um, and, and our staff seeing it through, no matter how stressful it has been, how much anxiety it has created, uh, e even personally, when some of them are, are fearful of catching a virus themselves, they, they've still been there every day educating our kids. So um, it, it's, it's one of those things that uh, are, there's a lot of intangibles uh, that go along with us educating our kids, but I, I think it's, it's uh, incredibly important to the health uh, and vitality of our community. Dennis, how about, how about your thoughts on all that? Um, you know, again, the same, I, I think uh, Rich hit on it with that word community. Um, you know, prior to the pandemic, those of us that have been in education for a lot of years, you know, we, we kept hearing about how the quote unquote typical model of school didn't meet the needs of all of our kids. We recognize that. But I think what we're seeing coming out of the pandemic, pandemic or while we're in it is that that kind of model that we maybe kind of questioned, was it still relevant? Was it still meeting the needs of our kids? I think there's been a tremendous affirmation about how important it is for kids, especially kids that are at risk to see an environment in which they see adults and other students model behaviors that while they may not have themselves or see them at home, they see them day to day and they know those are attainable. That's very difficult to do at home where that environment is intensified. So getting the kids in our schools, whether it's uh, private or public, doesn't matter. Good teachers are good teachers. Good school climates are good school climates. Those kids need to be with us. We, we do even more than just the academics. We help them grow to become capable and successful young men and women when they leave us. And we've got to have them in front of us to do that. So I, I think that has been the secondary, but maybe the most important thing out of all of this is that we've had them with us. And in turn, we've been able to help them maneuver and kind of weather this uh, pandemic together. I wanted to ask, was there a moment if, or, or I guess I should say, <clears throat> excuse me, was there a moment at any point when you thought, wow, this isn't going to work or a moment when you were very clear that, yeah, that we're going to be able to pull this off. It's, it's not as maybe as scary or as nerve wracking as we thought it would be. Dennis, you want to take that one first? Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah. Probably right after 4th of July, when we were all wondering if, if you know, we kept, it seemed like Rich, didn't it, that every week or maybe even three days, school calendars, regulations, when the state came out with that huge binder, I'll never forget, and that thing, you know, looked like uh, a ream or a tree had fallen, and we were staring at that on how to get our schools reopened, and I know my administrators, we just looked at each other, and we thought, there is no way we can put that kind of burden on the people we have on, on so many levels. So maybe like, again, right after 4th of July, before the end of July, when so many things were up in the air from the state board and, and Keisha and all those things, I really didn't know if by mid-August we were going to start school. But then somehow we got through it. 
we talked with each other. We had lots of meetings. Um, Dr. Stebbins and Bean kind of calmed our nerves a little bit. Rich, I remember that meeting we had in Girard High School Library where yeah. we kind of came to that conclusion, we can do this. It's not going to be easy, and we got a lot of stuff to do, but I kind of left that meeting being with other school administrators thinking, yeah, I think we can do this now. So kind of shifted a little bit from the early part of the summer to more toward the end of July. But I saw us kind of turn that page that I think we were going to be able to get it done. You know, for me, um, there, there were really two things that, that happened that were aha moments that I thought we're, we're going to be able to do this. Uh, first of all, it was students. Um, you know, in that time frame that um, Dennis is talking about, where we had, and I'm sure he did, I had all kinds of emails that told me all kinds of things that were really weren't the most positive, and a lot of naysayers saying we weren't going to be able to do it. And one of the things that I saw the most was, how in the world are you ever going to be able to have kids wear a mask all day long? You're going to be right. fighting it forever. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know what? We as adults uh, are not near as resilient as the kids are most of the time, and we don't <laughs> give them enough credit. Sure. And yep. the fact of the matter is, is that we have had very, very, very few instances where we have had to, to deal with students not wearing their masks. Now, do we have to remind them now because we have some COVID fatigue, if we can call it that, setting in and tell them to pull their masks up? Yes. But when the kids came in and they got it done and they were so thankful for being back in school, because they had been out since March. By the time they started up again, they had been out of school for five and a half months. And they were so thankful to be back that they were not going to jeopardize it again. So that's one thing. The second was when we had our first uh, real big event, which was a home football game. And, and you know, football is, is a very important thing in Pittsburgh. And we had to limit the amount of people that were coming into our stands. Uh, we asked them to take temperatures. We asked them to put on masks, all those things. And uh, we had extra security uh, to make sure that, you know, people were going to comply because we didn't know how the public was going to uh, react to it. And yet it, it went off without a hitch. Um, we, we just got it done. And, and once again, they were doing their part. So really, uh, again, it was back to the people that made it happen and their cooperation and, uh, and their support of our schools to make sure that we were able to do what we need to do. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the students piece of this because um, as, as we were kind of designing these sort of notion of who are the, who are the, the, the oh, the people of the year, right? The, that have, we actually are gonna, we're gonna do uh, one of these with students, uh, with uh, both a university student as well as then a, a elementary, middle and high school together. Um, I happen to have a middle school and a high schooler, so it's easy to interview them. We can get them involved. But, uh, <laughs> and my godson's an elementary school, so we can do that. But I, I think that there is something that we need to make sure we emphasize is, is that these students, these young people that were from the ages of, you know, maybe as young as four to five up to 18, that uh, they really, in a lot of respects, are some of those people of the year because they did accept uh, the instruction, they accepted the responsibility. And, and frankly, you know, one of the things that has really seemed to be lacking, I think, in has been civics education. We talk a lot about that and this. You want to talk about a civics education, a civics education of saying, okay, I'm willing to sacrifice and I have to sacrifice and put a mask on all day long or whatever it is in order for my community to be safe for my fellow classmates to be safe, for my teachers to be safe, for us to be able to move forward. I think that it's possible that these kids, even if it wasn't explicitly stated in that way of, hey, sometimes you have to give up what you want for yourself for the good of the, of the, the good of all, you know, the greater good. I think that might be embedded in them now because they've experienced it. And uh, that's an important piece, I think. Yeah, I think Brett so and, and Sean, I'm gonna take that even one step further because not only did they make it happen but they took leadership roles in this. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they didn't wait for our staff to tell other kids, put your masks on, socially distance, let's do what we need to do. They were doing it themselves. And, and that's where the true magic happens, I believe. If it's a top down and, and the teachers are having to remind the kids to do it, it it's just not going to happen. It's going to be an ongoing battle. But when the kids embrace it and they become a part of the leadership 
uh, in making sure it happens, uh, then, then we can really move the world. So that's been tremendous. Well, and I'll just, I also will just say uh, on a personal point of privilege here, uh, and especially since we've got Dennis on this episode, uh, how, how impactful this year has been on my two kids. Uh, it's been a transformational year. Uh, my daughter being in seventh grade, so first year of middle school at, at SMC, my son being a freshman. Uh, and so uh, my son playing football, high school football, and how much of an impact that made on him. And it lit him up in a way this year that he had not. Uh, my daughter playing basketball for the first year. Uh, and this is the out of the classroom things, right? And I look at this and I think how much more challenging this year would have been for them, how much less growth they might have had if they had not had access to those things. So, Dennis, I just want to thank you personally uh, well, you're for welcome. your leadership and, uh, and all you've done uh, for my own family. Well, you're welcome. And, and again, just again, a shout out to, you know, uh, with that to USD 250 is, you know, I've, I've told a lot of civic organizations and things, our cooperation has always been very good. And, and we all have the same goal in mind, and that's to prepare our kids to be good citizens that choose to stay in Pittsburgh. So uh, you're, you're right, Sean. I mean, we've seen some kids that have actually not only in a typical year, we may not have seen this part of their character or their personality actually come out. Uh, you know, it's interesting to see how even with our adults, but again, with our kids, how sometimes those challenges, you know, gets a kid to reach down inside themselves, pull themselves up. Like Rich was talking about student led leadership. We've seen some kids lead that typically would not have led in a quote unquote normal school year. So that's, that's been gratifying. And, and there's always, again, you know, we've got to look for hope and silver linings and, and there's plenty out there in our schools. Uh, speaking of silver linings and uh, looking out uh, to the positive, let's talk a little bit about 2021 for you guys personally and professionally. Do you have any any New Year's resolutions or specific goals? If, if you guys make resolutions, I should say. <laughs> Go ahead, Rich. <laughs> well, my resolution at New Year's is always to lose weight, but but I, I never I never keep that one. So we'll just we'll just throw that one out. Uh, actually, no, th this is uh, one thing that we've been talking to our board of education about. Um, you know, th there are natural breaks. Um, you know, a, a lot of times when a new leader comes in, it's an opportunity to look at things differently. Uh, this pandemic has allowed us to look at things differently as well. And it's kind of one of those natural breaks. And one of the things we realize is that when we come back to whatever normal may look like, it's, it's going to be a new normal, I guess is that education is not going to be the same. And so we have taken this opportunity to really remain positive and look at those things that we need to do to better educate our kids in the future. And, and we found some nuggets here and there. And we found that, that um, a lot of the things in education that we said for years was not going to work, we actually did them and they do work. And so I think uh, in this, whether we realize it or not, we're transforming education for our kids and I think we're going to be better for it. I agree. And for us, um, you know, one of the criticisms and sometimes justifiable is that uh, any large institution, whether it's education, healthcare, whatever, has a very difficult time individualizing and maybe, maybe looking at the individual as a whole. I think through this, we have been able to, and technology has been a big part of that, but we've been able to see close at hand that, you know, again, we've always said one size doesn't fit all. We knew that we weren't always, at least as far as my career has been always real great about addressing that. I see some real potential on tailoring and adapting and just kind of forming an educational plan for these individual kids that now we have resources that we're able to do that and, and they can be an active part of, you know, was it, what is it that I want to get out of school? You know, we'll, we'll do the requirements. We'll do those things that people expect schools to do, but then we can kind of get the kids involved in helping plan their future instead of being just a, a recipient of information and things we do 
we're going to partner up with them a little bit more and say, hey, you know, this is your future. You've got a lot of options. What can we do right now to help you get on the road to doing what what makes you you, you know? That's great. All right. So uh, as we wrap this up, um, and, uh, again, I want to just say thank you guys both. Uh, it really is uh, one of the most significant stories uh, of our community and, and, and the two of you and the leadership you provided, along with the other, um, I guess, four superintendents in our county. Uh, has yeah. been incredible. Uh, I think it's something that we, we, we will look back on uh, and, and think about the leadership and, and how important that was. And so thank you guys for that. Uh, we've been asking everyone on these segments uh, one word for you that defines 2020. So um, either one of you can start, whoever has one. Rich. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I know I know it may seem odd, but thankful. Um, there, there are so many things that, that people are missing out on. There's a lot of tragedy that's around us. And yet there are so many things that have happened that we need to be thankful for. And so in the midst of everything that's been going wrong, I'm very thankful for the people that have been placed in uh, this county, in our district, uh, the partnerships that we have and how we've been able to see it through. So I'm very thankful for everybody. I think that's a great one. And I'll just add mine as, as hope, you know, that, um, we are always as a nation and even as individuals, uh, that's been part of our, our DNA is that no matter how difficult the challenges hope is, is that tomorrow's going to be a little better. We'll, we'll take with us that we need to take leave behind that we don't need anymore and, and hope that it's always going to be a little bit better than what we found it. It's a great way to end it. Yes, very well said. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're All thankful right. for you Thank guys you taking so time today. Yeah, and we're okay, thankful for both of you, and uh, you give us hope. So there we go. Okay. We usually work. Thank you, guys. Thank okay. you, guys. Take care. Appreciate you. Thank yeah. you. Well, that was a, a great brief conversation with uh, the two uh, two superintendents here in Pittsburgh, and, and the challenge they faced, and, and again, just emphasizing how how proud we are uh, to be in a county that managed as well as we did to keep our schools open, knowing how important that is, particularly for a place like uh, Crawford County in Pittsburgh and, and uh, a number of those kids who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and the challenges that, that, that face uh, all every day and particularly during the pandemic. Um, we we're fortunate to be able to keep our schools open here. So, and now we, we wanna to turn to a little bit of focus on higher education. Obviously that's a significant uh, driver for Pittsburgh, for Crawford County and um, and obviously uh, around the block is an outgrowth of the university. And so focusing on the university, we thought it'd be appropriate to focus on someone who has spent their career focused on in-class in teaching. And uh, that's Dr. Mark Peterson, uh, who is a professor here at Pittsburgh State. Uh, in addition to that, this was a, a special interview for me because Dr. Peterson is probably uh, responsible uh, more than anyone other than maybe my mother for my intellectual formation and was an incredible mentor as an undergrad here at Pitt State and really is an exemplar of uh, the, the, the teaching focus and spirit that uh, Pittsburgh State University has always had. So uh, we had a great conversation with him about the differences in, in teaching outside of class uh, when it's mitigated through a computer or a phone versus in class and, and the things that he's learned and takes away and is looking forward to in 2021. So without further ado, let's go around the block with Dr. Mark Peterson. Okay, so we're we're so excited today. Uh, I know personally, this is a really kind of important moment for me to have uh, my, I, other than my mother, maybe the most important intellectual influence on my life. Uh, and that's Dr. Mark Peterson. And uh, if I call him Doc, it's a term of endearment, uh, not of disrespect. And uh, um, I will briefly, before we get into the meat of this, say uh, I was a freshman in college and I signed up. At the time, I, in the middle of it, wondered if it was a mistake for introduction to political science. And that was my first exposure to Dr. Mark Peterson, uh, who... At the time, I was not sure if, if he was wildly insane or the, <laughs> or, the greatest, or the greatest teacher that I had ever had. And uh, I came to realize it was the latter. 
Uh, not that there's not a little bit of the former in there too, but uh, it was mostly the latter. And so, uh, as I said uh, at the outset, I don't know of anyone who's had more influence on me intellectually and on challenging me uh, than other than my mother uh, and Dr. Peterson. And so, uh, welcome to Around the Block, Dr. Peterson, and uh, we're so happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much for the uh, generous introduction. And uh, I will try not to disappoint you in this interview. Uh, the, the initial question you asked was really about uh, the biggest impact of 2020 on me as a teacher. And it was something that I learned uh, very early in terms of the transition from face-to-face -face classes back in March to Zoom. And there's a number of components of this that are important. Uh, but I'll cut to the one that was most illuminating to me. And that is, I had never realized the degree to which teaching is intuitive. And uh, the Zoom sessions, I think, are much better than, you know, not having Zoom sessions. Uh, because hopefully, if the students all put their uh, cameras on, you get a sense, some sense of where they are. But even with that, I was not able to read the students. Do they get it? Is there some, are they falling asleep? Is there something that I haven't explained? Is there something that I have introduced that seems to be exciting to them and I want to develop? And I had some set, <clears throat> excuse me, some sense of that through the Zoom sessions, but not nearly as much as I get in a face-to-face -face class. And so I had never realized that the degree to which teaching is really intuitive. So that was the, the, I mean, that was after 25 plus years at Pittsburgh State University, that was illuminating. Uh, there were a number of other things that were associated with that that I could go into, uh, but just in terms of the number one issue for me in terms of what I learned and the, what the impact of 2020 on me was that understanding fully the intuitive dimension of teaching. Well, and I think that it's important really to emphasize, um, and I know this isn't just me personally feeling this way. I, I know there's a lot of others that do it, that I don't know there's anyone that I've ever engaged with that has more of a commitment to, to the, the teaching aspects of your profession than you, and that being really your academic research work even, and, and, and that focus. And, you know, the, I don't think there's anyone I took more hours from in college actually, and uh, anyone that I had to work harder for anything above a B than you actually too. So that, <laughs> that all like uh, really, really connects. But, you know, you, you mentioned that intuitiveness and and this is something I know for myself, how important that kind of almost biofeedback is when talking to a group, you know, that sense of, did this land, did that not land? Are they feeling this? You know, those, those, those nonverbal cues that you might get. And I know, because I know we share, a, a, we all three share a very deep love for music and such. And, and one of at least Brett and my favorite musicians, the guy named Jack White. And there was an interview he did with uh, Conan O'Brien where he talked about at the time he was reading a book about Lenny Bruce, the comedian. And it was about this notion that uh, the, the brilliance of comedians, you know, the intellectual lab, but also how much feedback you get from the audience and from the crowd and how that dictates what your next move might be. It's that intuitiveness that you're talking about. And, and, and Jack White was saying that, you know, he hardly plays with a set list because he wants to see what's landing and what's not. Oh, so, yeah. I'm wondering if that's a similar sort of thing that you observe and have, have, have determined for yourself too. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and then you, when you think about lessons of teaching through Zoom versus face-to-face, -face, uh, this semester was different because we knew that there was only gonna be one week of Zoom classes. <clears throat> and, uh, and so we had 14 weeks to get to know each other. And so in that respect, the Zoom sessions were less frustrating for me. But there was one class in particular uh, in which the students just, instead of showing their faces, I was getting nothing. In fact, 
unless someone wanted to make a comment, I had nothing but blackness in front of me. And uh, it was horrifying. It was, you know, it was a three hour class. So I was just petrified for that entire period. It was one, one of the scariest Staring into the abyss. <laughs> yes, that's right. The Zoom abyss, yeah. And uh, one of the things that that triggered is, uh, this gets into larger issues of education more generally, but I had students asking me if I would record my lectures. And this wouldn't necessarily have to be, you know, in the spring semester where we had what, six weeks of, of Zoom sessions. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there was nothing wrong in their request, but I said, absolutely not for this same reason. And that is, if I can't get some feeling for where you are, there's no, I mean, the learning curve goes down dramatically. If there's no way a student can interject a question or a comment, then that learning is down the tubes. And I thought this is a big question that uh, higher ed has to face. And that is, are we gonna be a great lectures thing? I mean, I watch great lectures, the, you know, the, the series, and you can get the DVDs or the CDs. And I'm constantly frustrated because I can't ask the idiot a question. And yeah. so if, is that what, I mean, it, it is more convenient for the student to say, I can, you know, I can watch this at a time of my convenience, or I don't, you know, it, it, but they forget that they're part of the learning process. And that is so important. I'm not just up there like a great lecturer giving a great lecture course. I am interacting with the students. And so uh, I, I know that there are a lot of faculty who really think that they're doing a favor to students by saying, yes, I will record it and you can watch it whenever you want. But it raises a serious question about what a brick and mortar university is about. And it troubles me very deeply. I wanna pick up on that a little bit on the, on the student piece of this. I'm wondering, and this is a conversation that could take hours, but you have a few minutes on this topic, but let's talk about how have students changed over your career? What have you observed in the way students have changed, but also I suppose the question would be, how did they change even just this year? How did the, the, our current times have an effect on, and you sort of touched on it already, but how did their behavior and, and even their involvement in the learning process change this year? Uh, I can answer that in a couple of ways. Actually, let me start with a, a more humane, the most humane approach to it that I picked up this year, particularly in March. And that is, I mean, they announced on Friday the 13th, I love that date for closing down our world, uh, that, you know, we were no longer doing face-to-face -face and we had to make this transition. Well, as Sean knows, I'm not a technological genius. So this was already a challenge for me, but compared to the students, I had it easy. I didn't have to move out of my house. I mean, I had students, uh, I can't tell you how difficult this was for me to even observe. Uh, and I'll just give you a couple of stories. One was a student who had to move out of the dorms and I have known her in other classes and she's a good student. And so, you know, she called her parents and said, can I come home? And she already knew they didn't have a very positive relationship, but they said, yes. She goes home and three days later, they kick her out. Uh, and she's left without internet. I mean, she's left without a bed, first of all, but without an internet connection. Another student, this is one of the best students I've had in several years, emailed me and said he'd left all of his class notes in the dorm. You know, it may have been a mistake, but which he admitted, but for God's sake, you know, his life was totally disrupted. He says, what is this, what's the next assignment? What are the readings for next week? And so I saw a lot of hardship. I saw a lot less bitching and moaning about that. 
In other words, they were willing to do this, which was for me amazing. Associated with this, and this I think also relates to, Sean shared his interview with Father Parker, and this is the issue then of, of thankfulness. And uh, this is not related directly to students, but the Center for Teaching and Learning came to the fore. And uh, Jennifer, I can't even remember her name right now, personally, uh, you know, led me through. And keep in mind, I'd never done a course online. I didn't know what the Zoom word Zoom was until a week before the pandemic hit. And she was absolutely heroic. I mean, she put up with me, and that is amazing. Now, all of this is just, this gets also back to what I learned in 2020, which has been, to me, in many ways, an awakening. But your question is about how students have evolved over time. <clears throat> I teach political science, and so I've seen attitudes. I'll, I'll go to two dimensions. One is in terms of participation in class, which is something I started with. And the other is attitudes. <clears throat> uh, on issue, on, particularly on social issues, uh, particularly you know LGBT, Q, excuse me uh, for missing a letter, uh, as well as race. It's just been a sea change in terms of greater tolerance. I mean, it's just when I would talk about gay marriage in 1995. I was sure to upset students. They didn't like to even talk about it, let alone think about it in terms of something like gay marriage. And now this isn't you know, a big majority, but it was a lot. And I used it purposely to make people feel uncomfortable and uh, in order for them to try to learn something in terms of issues like equality. And the other issue is race. <clears throat> And that was less of a problem, certainly, than homosexual issues. But there were comments that students made 25 years ago that they didn't realize held with them a degree of racism. And I don't get that anymore. I think that there is, well, actually, that's turned up a bit in the last four years. But either way, it is far less than it was 25 years ago. Uh, the other issue is participation. And I mentioned how important that participation is to my own teaching. And uh, most of the political science students, so my upper division classes, that's still not a major problem, uh, but it is more of a problem than it was 25 years ago. Students were more willing to participate and Obviously, 25 years ago, there were, any stu were no students looking at their damn cell phones, excuse my French. Uh, and so uh, that has been something that is troubling. So one thing very optimistic, one thing not so much. You know, I want to pick up on something there because there's a, a connection here, on the, uh, particularly on the race issue. You know, this was a year, if we think about... Um, the impacts. I mean, we, we, we did one episode on the on the, the racial injustice issues and racial equality issues. And and I know that <clears throat> there's interesting there's, there's been an interesting connection for me uh, with you and thinking about uh, your college days. So so you went to undergrad Antioch College in Ohio, correct? Yes. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but Dave Chappelle Yellow Springs. <laughs> yes, Yellow Springs, Ohio, which I think most people until this year may not have even heard of Yellow Springs, Ohio, until Dave Chappelle has had some, you know, his, he did the eight minutes and 46 seconds about George Floyd, and then has done, he did the, an incredible interview with, with Dave Letterman uh, from his home in Yellow Springs. And he mentions in that interview, I don't know if you've seen it yet, the, but he talks about Yellow Springs and about his father, I think was a professor at Antioch. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about your time there, because obviously that was a place that was very progressive when it came to equal, uh, equality issues and, and racial issues and beyond. You're talking about the arc of these younger students. I mean, if you think about even further back than 25 years, your time at Antioch until now, have you, have you observed a broad sense of, of some evolution and change on those issues? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> so 
I'm not trying to say that just the 25 years since I came here, uh, you know, saw all of that change uh, from the time I was in college in the 70s until the mid 90s when I got here, there had also been a significant change. Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, George Wallace ran for president in 1968 as a third party candidate on an explicitly segregationist platform. And I, I hope that that could not happen today. So I guess in the, the follow-up on that, as we think about one of the other pieces that we're, we're wanting for folks to comment on that we're highlighting is, is when we think about going into the future. So you've, you've really commented on some of the things, your observation of how 2020 impacted you personally and the, 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 the students that you care so much about, maybe some things you've learned uh, about that uh, and the importance of in-person education and all these sorts of things. As you look forward, uh, were there aspects of 2020 and what you saw and whether it's on this racial issue or other things that, that caused you some hope as you go into 2021? Or trepidation, whatever your feelings are about turning the page of the calendar. Uh, let me see. You said we have three days for this interview? <laughs> yes, exactly. Three days. Yes. Well. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd have to answer both the the hopes and trepidation in the same in the same answer. Um, and this has to do both with education and more broadly with society. Um, I, I teach political science, which you might suggest then I think is important. And if you look at our world, there have been opportunities in our in our history, where we have seen dramatic change, which most people on reflection think are good. We did get rid of slavery. It was a very difficult time to get rid of it, but we did. Uh, we, and again, most people I think would agree that was a good thing. We got over with a progressive era and I would include in that women gaining the right to vote or taking it is a better way of putting it. Uh, Again, that was an op a huge opportunity, beginning with Teddy Roosevelt and through, I like to include Taft and Wilson. And then uh, the, the, that was the progressive era. And then we got over the Great Depression, which again, required great hardship. And eventually we came out with something better. And then we had the civil rights movement. And once again, before that, blacks weren't allowed to vote in most of the South. Uh, you know, segregation was the rule, and, and we overcame parts of that. And so with both Black Lives Matter and COVID-19, I see this opportunity then for change along those lines that are going to be as substantial as that to addressing structural racism. Uh, Addressing why aren't we thinking more about wholesale change in our healthcare system during the time of COVID-19? Uh, th that seems to be a ripe time for reforming healthcare. Now, are we going to do that? I, and the answer to that question is still really unknown. In 2008, with Barack Obama's election and the Great Recession, I thought that there might be prospects for making dramatic change. And at the best, I would say it was a needed reform, but not wholesale change. So are we going to do that this time? I don't know. There are some hints that we may be getting there, but you know, I can't predict what will happen in 2021. As for education, and uh, this is something that I find troubling in terms of trends that I've seen until now. And I don't know to what degree COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter will make a difference on campus. And that is, you know, our gen ed system just got now it's called Pathways. And you can now get a degree from Pittsburgh State University without taking a political science course or a history course. 
That to me is deeply troubling. And so you talk about thinking, I've just used history to give you an example of how things have changed in the past. And all those things are related to politics. You used to have to take a political science course and a history course, not to mention more in terms of what we would call a liberal arts education. Five years ago, we had four full-time political scientists tenured or tenure tracked. Now we have two. Uh, so why is this university decided to go in that direction? Well, I'll leave that up to you. But I think that the entire foundation of a liberal arts education has been under attack. And that depresses me tremendously. Let me ask you about something that I think I know Sean and I and many others have talked about, especially over these last four years. You know, one of the things that people always say, one of the cliches of our society is you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. Well, it seems to me that we are terrible about talking or we're terrible at talking about them. And maybe that's why we don't do it. But to your point about, you know, students going through a political science course, I mean, what what would you, if you could wave a magic wand and get your way in terms of how do you get society to be able to go through a political cycle in a more civilized manner, especially in a country like ours, because it doesn't seem to me like in a country like ours, it shouldn't have to be this hard and this awful every time, just, just for the, just on a presidential election cycle. I mean, we are, we hate each other, it seems and we, we just don't know how to talk about our differences. Like, do, would you, if, if you could get your way, how would you say we go about fixing that? Well, once again, you said we have three days for this conversation. <laughs> yes, I know. This is gonna be longer than we thought. It's gonna be a week. This is gonna be a week. But it, <laughs> okay. It's fascinating though. So I, I wanna keep well, it. We're probably gonna have to come back for a deeper dive episode at some point. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I'll try to give you the Cliff's Notes version. I mean, first of all, I mentioned that students didn't have smartphones 25 years ago. And that, that when the internet, when, when Al Gore created the internet, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, I viewed it as a fantastic innovation that would give access to all these different perspectives that, and I think it actually had a positive impact on students. And that is they became more aware of, uh, you know, of Africa or Latin America or Asia. And you could look these things up on the internet, even if it was no more than entertainment, which became a sort of multicultural experience. <clears throat> and then we had QAnon. And so it, that, that, that new medium provided an opportunity for, shall we say, mischief <clears throat> for, polarization. Uh, with that said, and I, I just, I was on sabbatical during the spring 2017 semester. And so in that time between my last class, December 2016, until August 2017, the world seemed to have changed with the, with Mr. Trump becoming president. And I was since the sea change had occurred while I was, you know, not teaching, I wanted to get a sense of where the students were. I had already for several years provided this survey of students in my 101 class in particular to get a feel where they, how they felt about various issues. And it was not just, you know, opinion issues. It was, you know, who is your, who do you consider to be a hero? So, it was, I just wanted to get a sense of who students were. And one of the questions I asked was on a scale of one to 10, and I can't remember exactly how the question was worded, you know, how do you feel about uh, President Trump as president? And so it was, you know, really don't like him to really like him. And so given the polarization that we had ex witnessed that just seemed to be exploding, I expected their opinions to be polarized. I have asked that every 
Political Science 101 class since I came back from that sabbatical. And the largest grouping, I group them into three groups, high, low, and medium. And every semester, the plurality of students have been in the middle. They're not as polarized as we think. And so why is it that we have this impression that everything's polarized and we can't talk to go back to your question, Brett? And uh, <laughs> uh, I remember an Anthony Bourdain show, it was about Montana. And he starts the show out saying, you know, if you're sick and tired of watching the, the bobbleheads talk on cable network, come out to Montana. And you'll find then his point was that we're not a country of bobbleheads, each like Fox and MSNBC, each screaming at each other. We're, we're not all like that. Now, when our only choices of watching cable news are so polarized, it can give us that impression. But that doesn't mean it's the truth. So, you know, QAnon, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, play on that notion of fear. And what I, fear is a very powerful human emotion. And so how do we get people to watch us? And that is, let's show them the fear. Let's put on something night after night where you're gonna be, have the dickens scared out of you. And uh, that's deeply troubling because it does have an uh, impact on our students or, or the population as a whole. But it is my hope that that does not truly represent what the American people are. Yeah, that's actually an incredibly important point. I'm glad you said that because you know we've we've all been around certain parts of the country, and no one behaves in the way that you see on even even the way people talk to each other on social media. But it's not how you talk to each other in coffee shops or at you know the gas station or whatever. Like everyone's civil. No one's asking which party you or what person you voted for. Like. It's only a big deal where the places make, in, in the arenas where they make it a big deal. And in that arena, it is a mess. But um, so very good point there. And this, Sean and I were just talking, we just texted real quick and this could go, truly could go on for days, but um, we are gonna cut it right now. We're gonna wrap it up just, but we're gonna have you back on soon and go to a deeper dive on some of this stuff. And be a multi-part. Yes, for sure. Uh, but I think, I don't know if you're someone who does New Year's resolutions or uh, goals or anything like that, but I guess we just wrap it up with the question of uh, what are you looking forward to in 2021? Do you have any personal interests or desires or, or goals in mind as we go into next year? Uh, I'll start out with the personal, and that is I hope I get a shot as soon as humanly possible. Uh, and I not say like, that, not like a shot in the way of like Alexander <laughs> Hamilton shot or uh, I at he meant bar, or the bar. Uh, <laughs> I think he means a vaccination. Oh, there. <laughs> yes. And I say that, you know, I mean, Sean, we were talking earlier just about liking to we're social beings and I haven't been able to be very social, but also so that I can get back into a class face to face. Even the masks disguise some of the emotions of students. So, uh, you know, that idea of getting a shot and it has to do with my personal life as well as teaching. And uh, my hope at a, a grander scale, I don't know if this is really a grander scale or not, is that we can have some accommodation in Washington to find compromise. This group of eight senators, and they have a similar group in the House of, of moderates who are attempting to find solutions to things, gives me some glimmer of hope. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I want to add one thing here because you mentioned shots and this isn't exactly the kind of shot I was thinking about, but it's a, 
it's a a nice way of sort of ending this conversation, at least in terms of teaching. And that is last semester in my international political economy class, I was, you know, the last six weeks of class were on Zoom. And it was a good class. There were all, a small number of students, I think seven or eight, nine students. And we all got along well. And so it was a night class starting at 6.30, a three hour class. And uh, so it, the, there's a break in the middle of class. And during that break, I decided to do something that I had never done in a class because it was always illegal. And I went to the refrigerator and got myself a beer. And so I started the second half of class saying, you know, I've never been able to do this before because it's always been illegal. I've always taught on campus, but here's to you. And I lift the beer up. Five of the other students all lifted a drink. <laughs> They've been hiding their drinks from me. And it just made me feel absolutely wonderful about, and everyone smiled. And uh, I guess it is students that make me feel hopeful about the future. All of a sudden they turn their cameras on. They, all, well, they, <laughs> they realized they, they could, you gave them the permission to do so. That's right. They uh, had all been hiding their drinks before that, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a great way I think for us to wrap on a hopeful note that we can maybe, uh, and maybe soon we can all be in the same room raising a glass uh, after we've got the other kind of shot in our arm. <laughs> That's right. uh, that we can, we, can, we can raise the other kind of shot together and toast. And so, um, yeah, we're gonna have to have you back on because we wanna get into some of these things more detail, but uh, you know, thank you for the influence you've had on me. Uh, thank you for your service to this place and uh, the scores of other students just like me who probably often think to themselves, I'm so glad I went ahead and took the chance and didn't drop that class with Dr. Peterson <laughs> when I thought he was crazy. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you, very and much. thank you for your kind comments. <laughs>